Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. We have a new guest on our podcast this week, Elise Zaidi. She is a news editor here at The Hatchet, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about her story that she did on research at the Graduate School of Political Management. Thanks for being on the podcast, Elise. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what is the research that the Graduate School of Political Management is doing right now? So researchers from uh, GSPM, they partnered with a Boston company called Crimson Hexagon, and they did kind of analytic tracking going back to 2010 of hashtags related to the sexual assault kind of movement currently going on. So uh, hashtag times up, hashtag workplace harassment, hashtag no means no, and most notably hashtag me too. Why are these researchers so interested in this topic? After the Harvey Weinstein scandal mm-hmm. broke in the entertainment industry, The researchers, particularly Michael Cohen, who is the chief data analyst, and Michael Cornfield, who is the research director for the project, they both felt that even though it started in the entertainment industry, that it would move to be political. And Mm -hmm. they ended up being right. You see more women running for office you see even congressmen uh, facing repercussions for sexual harassment. You see women's marches. And they basically thought that this would translate to a movement kind of like Black Lives Matter, where the volume and the impact of something going on on social media, even just a hashtag, could have an actual impact politically And what are the actual numbers that they found? Like, how far did this movement go? So, basically, they started tracking hashtag MeToo in mid-October. The Harvey Weinstein scandal came out in early October. They waited a week to see if it would be contained to just affecting the entertainment industry. And as we all know, it was not. It spread from there. So, they started analyzing it as a hot topic on Twitter, along with things like DACA, The Wall. These were all trending hundreds of thousands of tweets every week. And what they found was that hashtag MeToo and similar hashtags were in the top five trending topics on Twitter every week since mid-October to today. Still today, there's this much Still today. The highest number of tweets in a week even went up to over 700,000 in December. It depends week to week on whether or not it's the number one topic on Twitter, but it remains relevant. It remains in the top five, which is pretty rare. What are researchers hoping to do with this analysis in the future? This research team is the first to be looking at Twitter in terms of how online movements turn into political movements. So they're, on one hand, trying to prove that you can look at things like what's trending on Twitter, what's trending on Facebook, even on Instagram, and it can actually tell you something about the country and where it's going. On the other hand, they're also 
kind of trying to prove that the consciousness in the country regarding masculinity and power and women's roles in society, sexual harassment in general, that it is actually shifting. This is obviously a complicated kind of research project, but what are some of the main takeaways we can get from it? Michael Cohen, the chief data scientist for the project, talked about how he can see the beginnings of a political movement in this research. The one that I actually found most compelling, and I think this is kind of um, highlighted in the Washington Post article that came out, is this kind of question about why Me Too or why Harvey Weinstein, right? Why, of all the things that popped up in the conversation over time and going back to 2010, there's obviously a lot of kind of inflection points um, and flashpoints that we found. Uh, Access Hollywood already mentioned, the Bill O'Reilly Fox News thing I talked about, um, Travis Kalanick at Uber. You know, there are a lot of different kind of flashpoints in this conversation, but Me Too is the one that stuck. And so we kind of doubled down on that question and just tried to see if the data could help us in any way answer that question about what was it that made this, you know, a a movement, not a moment. Um, And what we found is that it was the accusers themselves of Harvey Weinstein that helped kind of propel the conversation. What is going to happen with this research in the future? They plan to continue the research and see what other trends come up. Thanks for coming and talking to us about this research today. No problem. Leah's got some news for us that actually broke last week, but she's heard some new updates about it. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, so last week all we knew was that the university had fallen under investigation for disability discrimination, but this week we found out from the university that it was regarding website accessibility. And what does that mean exactly? That just means that all websites and online programs of a university need to be accessible to students with all types of disabilities. So this could be maybe a student is blind and can't physically read the text or see the images on the page, but they might have a special program that reads out information to them. And that also means that all photos, all videos need to have captions that like an electronic reader can read out for them. Also, if a student is hard of hearing or maybe deaf, there are also programs that can either enhance the text on the page or maybe make audio a little bit louder. It also requires all videos to have closed captions, and that means that all scripts for videos need to be transcribed as well. But do we know any more details about this specific incident? Is it just one incident or could it be more complaints? There could hypothetically be more complaints, but this is the only one that has launched an official federal investigation. And as of now, we don't have any specifics on the case. All that we know from the university right now is that they are looking into the investigation and that they're complying with the Office of Civil Rights. And also that they have launched a task force to look into their digital accessibility. But is this a common thing? Like, do other schools have this type of investigation going on? As of January 12th of this year, there were over 2,000 schools, both like elementary, secondary, and post-secondary schools who are facing disability investigations. Are there any kind of consequences for this kind of investigation? Like what is coming up? This could mean a change in policy uh, or a change in how a certain website functions or how a certain online program is being run. Are we going to get any more details from DW about this either? 
as of now, it doesn't seem like we will. Usually, they're pretty tight-lipped about these types of cases. Um, in the past, when the university fell under Title IX investigation, all they could really tell us was that they were cooperating with OCR, and they couldn't really provide any details or specifics about the investigation, and usually they won't disclose who filed the complaint. Has GW struggled to accommodate students with disabilities in the past? Yeah, so even a few months ago, we did a story about students who have physical disabilities and how they often struggle to access different components of the campus, whether it be not being able to go upstairs and having difficulty taking the elevator or not being able to take the VEX because it's not wheelchair accessible and then missing your university writing class. What makes it hard for universities to kind of accommodate their students? Yeah, one of the biggest obstacles that experts talked about was that all audio and video needs a transcription on any website or online platform. And transcribing, say, a 30-minute video can take a long time, and then also this costs a lot of money. It can cost up into the thousands of dollars because you're paying individual people to complete this task. What was the university's response to this news? All the university could tell us at this time was that they have launched a task force to assess digital accessibility, but also that they make digital accessibility a priority, especially for students with disabilities. Earlier, you had mentioned to me that sometimes there's challenges with third-party vendors like Blackboard. What kind of accessibility issues come up with that? Yeah, so when you're dealing with these other vendors, a lot of times they're going to have updates that are more controlled by them and the university isn't really part of that. So the university might get notice of this later and then find out, oh, this is going to make this less accessible to someone with a disability. And then they're going to be a little bit later in correcting the issue as well. So a lot of times that can create issues and sometimes that might launch a complaint and the university in their response to us acknowledged that that could be an issue. And I guess you'll be keeping tabs on what's going on with this task force. Yeah, so I'll plan to check in from time to time about how the task force is doing and then also seeing if I can get updates on both the contents of the complaint by filing a Freedom of Information Act request and then seeing if they're still under investigation in the coming months. Yeah, thanks for keeping an eye on this for us, Leah. Yeah, of course. Liz has a story this week about a local theater festival that just recently started. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so it's called the Women's Voices Theater Festival, and it features all stories that are written by women. So it's all, you know, female playwrights or directors or someone like that. And a lot of them also tell stories about, you know, different types of women and like the lives that they live. Like what are some of the unique stories that they get to tell because it's like just a women's thing? Mm -hmm. So the stories are all about different things. Some of them are focused on the experiences of women, like I said. So one of them is actually about what it's like to be a gay woman and to be Muslim and kind of the story mm -hmm. of that person. And then there are other stories that really, there are other ones that don't have to do with women. And can you tell me why this was started in the first place? It was started in 2015, actually, and they had a really successful run and showed, you know, a lot of different shows around the D.C. area. And then they paused for a few years. And now this is a little bit of like a comeback for them. Why did they decide this was the year to bring it back? I mean, it's definitely timely right now with a lot of like women empowerment type of things dominating the news. And especially with like the Me Too and Time's Up movements, things like that have been really popular. So honestly, it's like the perfect time for them to bring this and like showcase women. 
A lot of the playwrights and directors who were involved also said that they were inspired to join this year, especially because of what's been going on in the news. And then they also said that there's a real inequality, especially in the leadership in the theater industry. So like a lot of directors and playwrights and things are all men. So the women just really wanted to stand out, especially this year. And is there anything that they were hoping that women or just people in general are going to get out of seeing these shows? A lot of the people that we spoke to just said that they really wanted to get involved to show other women that like they can take these leadership Mm -hmm. positions in the theater world especially and so just seeing these stories that are written by women and told by women are hopefully inspiring to others. Here is Natsu Onoda Power talking about why she wanted to get involved. Women are half the population so half the people participating in theater should really be women, and which is not actually the case in larger theater world. So I think it's a really important festival, um, even just by calling your attention to the fact that theater in general has been Men's Voices Festival. Thanks for talking to us about the Women's Theater Festival. Thanks for having me, Meredith. That's all for this week. Thank you for tuning in to hear all the news happening in Foggy Bottom and around GW. You'll hear from us next week with Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and features culture editor Liz Preventure. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Terrell. Music was provided by Olk Studios. Special thanks to Elise Zaidi for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. See you next week.